We are in chapter 31, and there's a war between Israel and the Philistines. And we learn the first four verses. And it opened up right off the bat in verse 1, that the Jews are fleeing, and the Philistines are pursuing them. The word in Hebrew, nidbak, like devik, like glue. They're glued to Saul and his sons, because everybody else has run away or has fallen. So Saul and his sons are taken on the brunt of the fighting. And then Saul's sons, Yonatan, Avinadav, and Malkishua, they are slain. And then the verse says, al The battle was heavy on Saul. And that's because Am Yisrael has been slain or they fled. His sons are dead. So the brunt of the Philistine attack is on Saul. And Saul knows he is going to be tortured and abused if he's caught alive. So he falls on his sword. And we discussed in Oleshior why in this case, taking one's life is permitted, especially when Saul, as the king of Israel, he's a symbol. He is the Lord's anointed. And if he's made a mockery of, it's a tremendous desecration of God's name. So Saul goes down as a martyr. Okay, so let's look at that again. Let's relearn verse four. It says like this. And Saul said to his arms bearer, draw your sword and run it through me so that these uncircumcised won't get to me and abuse me. So Saul wants to die at the hands of his arms bearer and not at the hands of the Philistines who will surely keep him alive. And as the abominable said, and we learned this last week, tear him limb from limb, gouge out his eyes, because they hated him since he killed a lot of Philistines. He's like arch enemy number one right after David. But then again, David's joined their side. So now Saul is number one. And the verse continues, but his arms bearer was unwilling for he was afraid. And the mitzvah that explains that he was afraid to set his hand forth against the anointed. He just couldn't do it. So the verse continues, and Saul took the sword and fell upon it. So Saul had no choice. His arms bearer couldn't bear to do it. So Saul takes his own life. And again, we discussed how in this case, suicide was permitted, just like in the case of Matsada, for instance. Not only is permitted, but it's heroic. And we compared Saul's suicide to what Samson did. He also took his life because the Philistines were making a circus act out of him and it was a desecration of God's name. Samson too, of course, was arch enemy number one of the Philistines at that time. Okay, so let's continue verse five. It says like this, And when his arms bearer saw that Saul died, So the arms bearer fell on his sword and he died with him. So this arms bearer, obviously loyal to Saul, he goes down with him for a similar reason. Better to take your own life and not have the Philistines kill you. And the Obarbanel writes on this verse that maybe the arms bearer, he's not famous. The scripture doesn't mention his name, but he's King Saul's arms bearer and he's loyal to Saul. That means he was with him throughout his entire life, fought at his side. And so he shares the same fate. And halakhically, he's just like King Saul. He's Anus. He had no choice for the same reason Saul had no choice. Okay, verse six, and this is what we call a summary verse. And Saul and his three sons died. And his arms bearer. All his men died together that same day. So like we said, that's what you call a summary verse. Saul's three sons died. And we'll see in the next chapter that he might have died differently than what's described here. He got some extra help, so to speak, from an Amalekite. And even though it's not mentioned here, it's very likely that there was more to Saul's death than just this, because an Amalekite is going to come with his version of what happened. And we'll see that there's more to his death than meets the eye in his verse. Now it says that Saul and his three sons died. And we know that Saul has a fourth son whose name is Ishboshet. 
who obviously didn't participate in this war, and there might have been a law that no more than three sons of a family can serve, so that in the case of defeat, the family doesn't get wiped out. Because we also saw in the Goliath story that Yishai also had three sons who were at the front, the rest of them stayed back. And after the verse says that his sons died, the verse concludes, Vachol Anshav, and all his men died. So when they say Anshav, his men, that's his sons, his arms bearer, and everybody close to him. And that's what the Mitzvah Dat David says. Avadav, his servants, Oseritz no, his inner circle, those who were closest to him. They all fell on that day. And these are the people who never gave up. They fought until the bitter end. Okay, so now verse 7 will explain what happened next. And when the men of Israel, who had lived along the valley, that is the Jezreel Valley, and they lived across the Jordan River, when they saw that the people of Israel fled, that is, they saw the Israeli army flee, and they saw that Saul and his sons died. When they saw all this, what does it say? They abandoned their cities and they fled. So these are the non-soldiers who were fleeing their towns when they saw what happened. Of course, these towns are in the north where the battle took place, the Jezreel Valley, Beit Shan, etc. And the Philistines came and occupied them. That is, the Philistines came and occupied the cities that the Jews abandoned. And that's what it means when you conquer a place. Kibush. You beat their army, the people flee, and you take it over. And the Malbin comments that this is a situation where they see there's no comeback. All hope is lost. The soldiers either fled or they're dead. Saul and his sons are dead. There's not going to be a comeback or a regrouping. It's all over. And that's why they flee. And again, the Philistines, they take control of the region. And Rabbi Kahana brings here that this is what's called the Chilul Hashem. When this happens, when the Jews flee and vacate and the enemy takes over and places their sovereignty over the area that you lived in, over a Jewish city, that's a Chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name because the place is now called on their name. That is God's name, which is represented by the children of Israel. It's emptied out. Again, Chilul from the Lashon Chalal, empty. God's name is emptied out. And there's a very famous verse, which we're going to learn a couple chapters from now. And it really illustrates this point that when the Gentile conquers the land from the Jews and places sovereignty over it, that's a Chilul Hashem. Where do we see this? In Shmuel Bet, chapter 12, you have Yoav and Avishai, Ben Surya, David's generals, and they're in the middle of this really tough war. And they're surrounded by the enemy and they know they might lose. And Yoav says to Avishai, Chazak v'nitchazek. Very famous verse. It means, be strong for our nation and for the cities of our gods. What does it mean, we have to be strong for the cities of our gods? So the Redak says like this, we cannot let our enemies conquer our cities and dwell there and establish sovereignty there because if they do, they won't be they won't be the cities of our gods anymore. They'll be the cities of their gods. That is, if they take it over, the city's called on their name, on their God. And that's why we can't let them conquer it. And that's what Yoav was saying to Avishai. That's why we can't let them win. We can't let them conquer it. So we see here that the fact that the Jews fled, it's not just a personal tragedy for each and every Jew, but it's a national desecration and a chil Hashem that the enemy has conquered those lands and places his sovereignty over it. And this concept is an example of the importance of learning Tanakh 
National concepts such as these, that is the desecration of God's name when the nations claim sovereignty over parts of the land of Israel, you can only get that from the Bible. If you don't learn Tanakh, then your Judaism becomes very personalized, but you miss out on the national aspects of Torah. And that's one of the reasons we want to learn Tanakh. Okay, so the tragedy continues. And it was on the next day, the Philistines came to strip the fallen bodies. So the, so the next day they go down to the battlefield where all the soldiers are slain and they take the clothes and they take the weapons and by stripping them down, like it says, by stripping them down like that so that they're left naked, that's part of the humiliation. You're not just stripping them of their garments, you're stripping them of their honor. So while they're in the fields, like scavengers stripping everybody down, it says, and they found Saul. And they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Okay, so they came upon the bodies and now they're going to abuse the bodies. And you're going to know why the Jewish soldiers gave their wives a get before going out to war. Because these wars were brutal and the fallen men were disfigured, unrecognizable. You couldn't recognize them. And that's why the woman would get a get, a divorce, in case her husband didn't come back because maybe he won't be able to be identified and she'd be a guna, etc. Okay, so they come upon the bodies and this is what they do to Saul and his sons. et And they cut off his head, that is Saul's head. et kelav. And they stripped off his armor. And what do they do with it? And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim, to bear tidings. They spread the news to the house of their idols and to the people. So they're obviously overjoyed by the victory, advertising it, and what a chilul Hashem, as they parade Saul's head and his armor in the streets of the Philistine cities. David is going to say later in his lamentation over the fall of Saul and his sons, don't tell it in God. That is, don't let the Philistines know about it in God. But we see here that God already knows about it. So they publicize their victory throughout the cities. And then, after showing off their victory, it says, and they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtarot, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beit Shan. Now, what does it mean they fastened his body? It says in Hebrew, Gviato Tak'u. Gavia is his corpse. Tak'u could mean they hung it up. Tak'u is like to stick it in with a nail. That's what the Redak says in Masmer. And the Tirgum Yonatan says, Salvu, which is a crucifixion. So it could be they nailed him up to the wall of Beit Shan. That's what the verse says. They have Saul's corpse stuck on the wall of Beit Shan. But what happened to his head? I mean, it says they cut it off. So in Chronicles 1, chapter 10, we find out what happened to his head. We get some additional information. It says like this, Ve'et galgulato, his galgulit, and his skull was fastened to Beit Dagon. So if you put it all together, the book of Shmuel with Chronicles, it means that the headless corpse was hanging on the walls of Beit Shan and the head was in Beit Dagon. And so we see two of the deities of the Philistines mentioned. You have the Ashtarot and you have Dagon. And we've run into Dagon before when they took the Ark and they put it in Beit Dagon. And it could be that the Ashtarot, that was their war god, and that's why they put the armor there. But their major god was Dagon, and that's where they put Saul's head as a symbol that their god defeated the god of Israel. And the whole point of hanging the body on the wall of Beit Shan, that's not a religious thing anymore. That's just a way to demoralize the Jewish people. Imagine them having to see that every day. Okay, so now there are going to be some brave Jews 
who are going to do something about this, and they won't let source corpse be defiled like that. So it says in verse 11, Ve'yishmolav yoshvei yavesh gilad et asher asu haplishtim l'sha'ul. And the people of Yavesh Gilad heard what the Philistines did to Saul. That is, they heard about it and they decided to do something about it. Now, who are these people of Yavesh Gilad? Remember them. They're on the east bank, on the east bank of the Jordan River. And if you remember, back in chapter 11, we had the story of Nachash, the Ammonite, who threatened them. He said to them, I'll give you a choice. Either we will wipe you out right now, or you can be slaves to us. And as a sign of this agreement that you'll be our slaves, you're going to have to cut out your right eye. And the Jewish inhabitants of Yavesh Galat said, eh, we'll think about it. Give us seven days to think it over. Remember, they're pretty isolated over there on the East Bank. And the elders of Yavesh Galad, they asked for help from the Jewish people. But everybody just cried. And Saul comes along from out of the fields. And this is when Saul was in his prime. He was just starting out. He cuts up his oxen, sends it to the tribes and says, he who doesn't come after me and after Shmuel in this war, this is what's going to happen to his oxen. And on the seventh day, Saul takes his army across the Jordan River and he smites the Ammonites and saves the residents of Yavesh Galad. And they remember this. It's payback time. Now, besides that, there is a blood connection between Yavesh Galad and the tribe of Benjamin. Because at the end of the book of Judges, you have the story of the Pelegish Begivah, the concubine in the hill, and all the tribes, they wanted to go to war against the tribe of Benjamin. And Yavesh Gilad refused to participate in the war against Benjamin. And following that, when the tribe of Benjamin got wiped out, 400 girls from Yavesh Gilad married the remainder of the tribe of Benjamin. So there's a blood relation there between Yavesh Gilad and Benjamin. But that's not the point. The point is that the people of Yavesh Gilad, out of a gratitude to King Saul, they didn't forget the chesed he did to them that he stood up for them. When they were under attack, he didn't leave them hanging. And they're not going to leave him hanging on the walls of Beit Shan, measure for measure. Okay, so what are the men of Yavesh Galad going to do about it? It says in verse 12, And all the brave men, or all the men of valor, arose, and they went all night. And they took the corpse of Saul and of his sons, from the walls of Beit Shan, and they came Yavesha, to Yavesh Gilad, and they burned them there. And let's just read one more verse to finish off the chapter. And they took their bones, and they buried the bones under a tree at Yavesh, and they fasted for seven days. Okay, so let's look at this courageous act carried out by the men of Yavesh Gilad. It says that they went from Yavesh in the East Bank, they journeyed all night to get to Beit Shan, and Rabbi Kahana connects that also to what Saul did for them in the war against uh, Ammon in chapter 11. And it says that Saul also went out all night to rescue them. It took him to get from Givat Shaul to Yavesh Gilad. So again, the brave men of Yavesh Galad are returning the favor. They're also going Kolalila all night to get to Beit Shan and take down the bodies. And you have to appreciate the Misru Nefesh, the self-sacrifice for them to do this because it's dangerous. They risk their lives for dead people, in essence. I mean, we're talking corpses here. They could have said, oh, they're dead anyway. Why should I risk my life? But they didn't say that. 
Now, of course, there's a matter of kavod met. You have to honor the dead and so forth. But even more so, it's a matter of chilul Hashem when the king's body is profane that way. And that's what really motivated them. And in any case, it took a lot of guts. And about a year ago, two years ago, Jonathan Pollard was sitting shiva for his wife, Esther. And she was a very brave woman, Esther Pollard. And he told the story at the shiva that some general came to visit them. I don't know which general in the Israeli army. And Esther Pollard, she rebuked them for not trying harder to bring back the slain bodies of the idea of soldiers who were being held in Gaza. Why did the Israeli army and government make the efforts to return the bodies? And she referred to our episode here where the Jews of Yavesh Gelad didn't let Saul's body remain in captivity. And so she said to them, you bring back the bodies of our fallen soldiers. And again, paralleling the story in chapter 11 where Saul saved the people of Yavesh Gelad against Ammon, there we also saw seven days. The people of Yavesh Gelad were given seven days to find the Savior and Saul came on the seventh day. And it says here they fasted for seven days. And the Radak says, Zechel Oto Sheva Yamim, that's a reminder or a memory to those seven days, to the seven days that they were given by Nachash the Ammonite. And so we see over and over again the gratitude of the people of Yavesh Gelad. And I'm going to read a midrash now from Yokot Shimoni, Rish Memzayin, Amru, Oto Ish Yitzilanu Mecherpat Amon. The people of Yavesh Gelad said, that man, that is Saul, that saved us from the disgrace of the Ammonites. Don't we owe him something? Don't we owe him kindness? The Almighty said to them, You did this kindness for Saul and his sons. I therefore will reward your children. In the future, how will he reward them? He's going to reward them that when the 10 lost tribes come back to the Jewish people, first, he'll bring back that half tribe Manasseh that's on the East Bank. That is the people of Yavesh Galad were from the tribe of Manasseh. And Manasseh from all the tribes will be the first to come back. And on this Midrash, Rabbi Ghana says, we see the power, the impact of one act of kindness. From one act of kindness, many, many acts of kindness could come out of that. That is, kindness begets more kindness. After all, the chesed of Saul brought forth a further chesed by the people of Yavesh Gilad. And that brought forth another chesed by Kodesh Baruch Hu, who was going to bring back the tribe of Manasseh first. And so we see the concept here of, you know, pass it on. Someone does a chesed, an act of kindness, and that reverberates and it leads to other acts of kindness. One chesed leads to another. And the final chesed mentioned here is God bringing back the tribe of Manasseh, which is part of the redemption process. So you can learn from here how acts of chesed lead to redemption. And before signing off, one last thing we have to relate to. It says in the last verse, or the next to last verse, that they took the bodies and they brought them to Yavesh Gilad via Shrafuotamshama. They burned them. Now that sounds like they cremated the bodies. Jews don't do that. We don't do cremation. And so there's a big discussion about this. Some say that they didn't burn the bodies. They burned the king's couch and objects of his service. That is, that is, in Jewish law, you can't use a king's specter or you can't marry his wife. Only another king can make use of the former king's objects. So it doesn't mean they burned the bodies. They just burned his stuff. And some want to say that what they burnt was they burnt incense. They burn incense to prevent the flesh from decaying and emitting an offensive odor. 
But it's certainly not the pshat because if you look at the verse, it says they took the bodies from the walls of Bechan, they came to Yavesh, and they burned them there. It's clearly talking about the bodies they burned, not incense. So the Redak says, yeah, it's a very strong possibility that they did burn the bodies and then buried the bones. Why? Because the decay was so severe and the worms got to it, right? I mean, think of what those bodies have been through. So this isn't a normal situation. And burning the bodies in this case was Kfodamet. That was honoring the dead because of all that the bodies had been through. Okay, so this is certainly a sad way to end the chapter and, and Shmuel Aleph for that matter. But we have a positive message here of kindness being passed on and leading to another kindness. And in conclusion, this chapter is all about Saul's death, a hero's death. And now we really have come full circle. At the beginning of the book, we saw the anointing of Saul as the first king of Israel. And now it's come to its bitter end, but it opens the door for the next king, David Amelech.